I, I worry about a lot of things. I encourage people to worry about a lot of things, but worry in the sense of taking action, um, doing something about it, uh, and but being cautious uh, as you do something about it, doing safety engineering. So every, every field of engineering has uh, a safety component uh, eventually. Uh, so you have uh, you know, civil engineering, aerospace, so forth. They have huge amounts of the budget that go to, uh, to safety components, and I think uh, biology is no exception. Certainly pharmaceuticals have a huge fraction of the budget for bringing a new drug to market is not the research and development that produces the first prototype drug, but it's, it's all the clinical trials, the toxicity, efficacy, testing. So, so I, I think about this, and some of the technologies we come up with are, are pretty uh, transformative, uh, disruptive in a good sense. Uh, and so the more transformative they are, the more important it is to consider safety up front. Ideally, talk about it before it's on the streets. So a um, counterexample is the, is the uh, influenza gain-of-function um, research where they brought to influenza some pretty scary new capabilities um, and didn't discuss it with, with really anybody who could have um, modulated or blocked or... Uh, cautioned them in their research until they were ready to publish it, which is kind of a little too late. It should have been, it's the sort of thing that should have been regulated before even the first grant proposal was made, much less the first research or the first paper. Um, so some of the things that we want people to worry about at the, uh, in an enabling way uh, these days going forward are... Um, a lot of new applications of a new technology, which is CRISPR. Um, we helped invent that. Uh, January 2013 was when it was first uh, uh, published. and uh, But the applications are even more shocking than, the, than, the, than those papers that showed that you could, uh, in two, that January 2013, the papers basically said that you can do homologous recombination meaning precise editing, not kind of random editing, but really say if you want a G to switch to an A, you can do that very efficiently in human stem cells. That's what we said. So CRISPR uh, was a phenomenology since 1987, but it didn't turn into a technology until 2012-13. And that uh, and what, what it is, is a mechanism by which bacteria protected themselves from invading viruses by making a molecular machine that would recognize those viruses and cut their DNA, uh, hopefully killing or at least um, disabling the, the virus. That was then, it, it seemed like that might be adaptable to um, uh, turning it from a killing machine into an editing machine. But that wasn't uh, that that transition didn't occur until uh, wasn't public at least until 2013, and the way it does it is it has a uh, it's a molecular machine like many uh, enzymes catalysts are a protein component and this one has a nucleic acid component a relative of DNA which is RNA and the two will then scan along your genome 
more or less randomly jumping around, sometimes revisiting the same site over and over. This is the wrong site, but eventually it finds the right site. And when it does, it rearranges the double-stranded DNA to insert the RNA and now making a triple strand. And then it, the protein cuts both strands. Now you've got a broken piece of DNA, which is seems like it's killing still, not, not editing. But that break allows you to bring in yet another mo molecule, which is now your donor DNA, which uh, now has the new sequence that you'd like to swap in. It can, it can cause a deletion or an insertion or just a change of sequence with the same number of base pairs of G's, A's, T's, and C's, just changing the composition, the order. Uh, now that's editing. It's just like you would edit uh, a book or an article. You want to be precise. You don't want to just change G to some random other thing. You want to change it to an A. And that's what we, that's the technology that we happened to demonstrate first. We moved it from bacteria into human, a huge jump and, in January 2013. And then um, many other labs, including ours, applied it to uh, many other organisms. So basically, there's no organism on the planet that I know of that somebody's tried um, that doesn't work in now, uh, which is not true for every editing method. <clears throat> and this editing method, you could say, is just, a is just a little more efficient and a lot cheaper, but uh, that makes it sound like it's an increment. But every now and then, if it's a sufficiently large increment, it's transformative. And that's, I think, most people that are familiar with it are classifying it as transformative. And for example, when you look at the applications of it, beyond engineering human stem cells, which we showed first thing, um, it can now, um, you can engineer, you can do uh, gene therapy with greater precision than ever before. That's the most obvious thing. You can, a uh, little less obvious is you can engineer agricultural species in such a way that many uh, governments are now classifying it as not a genetically modified organism. This is a big deal. I mean, it shouldn't be a big deal. It should, should be a minor bureaucratic footnote. But in fact, um, whether an organism is genetically modified or not, because of uh, people willfully um, uh, ignoring scientific uh, studies on safety, they draw this sharp line between genetically modified and not, especially for foods. Uh, mo even the most ardent uh, uh, anti-GM are still pro-GM if it's uh, um, life and death, like genetically modified insulin, where you grow human insulin and bacteria. But we'll come back to that. So, so that those two things are the more obvious ones, which is human gene therapy, more precise and efficient than ever, and um, agricultural. And then uh, becoming less, less obvious, since fewer groups working on it, very few, is uh, gene drives, which can be used to eliminate any vector-borne disease, uh, malaria, dengue, Lyme disease, as well as invasive species like rodents that are killing off uh, precious endangered species on hundreds of islands worldwide <clears throat> and mainlands. So that's gene drives. And then um, transplantation going from pigs to humans is a, a you know, million p 
people in need of transplants is, is not limited by just compatibility, incompatibility between people. It's just they're just not enough people. Even if we were all compatible, they're not enough donors. And so pigs offered that possibility, but there were two problems. One is the immune incompatibility, and the other is they had endogenous viruses. And so we've used CRISPR to solve both of those problems. Um, and then there's um, ecosystem manipulation. In addition to gene drives, you can um, uh, address the uh, isolation of, of uh, species elements, uh, the territories shrinking, getting divided by roads and, uh, and other human uh, artifacts, farms, and so forth. So now they become inbred. And when they become inbred, they become less uh, uh, robust, less fertile. And that's because you're, and, and that can be found by um, another revolution that we've been involved in, which is next generation sequencing or reading the genome. And you can now insert, um, using CRISPR, um, the proper, more fertile and more robust version of the genes um, or generate greater diversity. Now, some of that diversity you can bring in not only from adjacent populations that are, that are separated by man-made structures, but also uh, diversity from that are separated in time. So you can bring in DNA from the ancient extinct versions of these animals, uh, uh, near relatives, because this amazing next generation sequencing is so inexpensive and powerful that we can reach back up to 700,000 years into the past and get accurate sequences of um, long extinct species, but with potentially very valuable lessons for modern um, ecosystems. Right, so yeah, new technologies do change our um, perception of ourselves. Uh, it used to be new discoveries, um, as and it still is. Uh, it's kind of it's integrating. Uh, if you have a new technology like a telescope, it can change. It can cause a discovery about where we where our planet sits in the universe, whether it's a center or not. Um, but you can have a theory, um, you can ha and, and, and more and more frequently in the present, we have uh, new technologies. And sometimes people ask me, you know, why is everybody so worked up about applying CRISPR to the germline uh, of humans? Um, they're not worked up particularly about applying it to the germline of animals. And we just uh, got approval for genetically modified salmon. Um, and plants uh, have been genetically modified for many years now, um, even though some people will eat it and some people won't. The fact is there's, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, so why, why are humans special? Well, you could say, well, uh, you know, we have a very special system, the Food and Drug Administration for in multiple countries that, that uh, um, regulate, that make sure that every new medical technology, whether it's a medical device, uh, or a, a pharmaceutical gets has to be safe and effective. So it does you no good to have a drug that's safe but does nothing, and, and nor having one that's very effective but kills people. So so we have that in place. So again, what is it that makes 
germline manipulation of humans special. And I think it's what you were just getting at, uh, the, our perception of ourselves is if we, uh, if we feel that, that we can change any aspect of ourselves, um, we, you know, where do you begin and where do you stop? And what, what, uh, who sets those rules? When you're in a, a more primitive phase of the technology, um, you don't have to ask that question because it seems so far off, uh, and we can only make minor changes. You know, we can, you know, little nip and tuck, uh, you know, um, cure, you know, a few vaccines. It's not doesn't fundamentally change human nature. But if you ever did get a tool where you could fundamentally change human nature to anything you wanted, any hybrid with any animal properties that you like, um, hybridization with your inorganic machines that's more intimate than it is now, uh, that uh, changes our view of ourselves. And I guess that's why people consider that they, they not only want more caution than ever before, which I would concur, uh, they want maybe so much caution that it can never happen. And, this, and, and there are many technologies that get banned at one point or another. It's not unusual. I mean, railroads were banned because trains were colliding with one another, uh, sometimes in the middle of towns. Um, um, there was a hue and cry about in vitro fertilization. It was uh, pejoratively labeled test tube babies, you know, some kind of scare quotes around test tube babies as if um, that was intrinsically yucky and uh, unacceptable. But then the instance in 78 when Elizabeth Brown was born as a beautiful, healthy baby, the first real um, attempt uh, brought to term, and and suddenly it looked like it was 100% successful. And within a few years, there were millions of, uh, there are now, I think, then over 5 million test tube babies. Um, now the, and then for a while, it was kind of quiet between 78 and and now. It, was, it, was, it came up with recombinant DNA that maybe common DNA plus test tube babies would be a big thing, but it still seemed very far off, like it could be centuries off. And what happens sometimes is sometimes there are delays in technology, you know, like where's my, you know, jet pack or my flying car, and other times it comes faster than we think. So next generation sequencing should have taken, <clears throat> if you drew, you know, lines of, you know, trend lines, if it went like the way computers go, which is pretty fast, it should have taken a little less than a century to arrive, and instead it took a little less than a decade. Same thing with CRISPR as a way of doing genome engineering. Um, it, you know, it, it uh, came out of nowhere. I mean, it was, it was, there was no CRISPR technology in 2000, beginning of 2013, and uh, three years later, it's everywhere. It's all over the place, and, uh, and it's, quite, it's quite plausible that we can do uh, genome engineering. So the reason that some of these technologies arrive so far ahead of expectations is a mixture of, you know, uh, obsessive uh, uh, pursuit by engineers and serendipity. And these are, and I think, uh, with next generation sequencing, a uh, little of each, uh, where uh, my group has been involved in almost every different way of doing next-gen sequencing, ranging from nano. Uh, <clears throat> nanopore sequencing to fluorescent sequencing to electronic 
sequencing like ion torrent. And similarly, we've been involved in every way of doing um, genome engineering, starting with recombinant DNA, with uh, homolo uh, endogenous homologous recombination, so-called meganucleases, which one of my mentors as a graduate student, Bernard Dijon, discovered it was only the first of the ways of cutting DNA, that CRISPR is now the most recent. It was also the first gene drive that he discovered in, um, uh, in the early 1980s. Yeah, so Bernard Dijon uh, was, was one of my co-mentors during my PhD, and, and he uh, discovered the first meganucleus, the first really uh, very specific cleavage where it would cleave once in a genome, uh, and then uh, and then after that, uh, zinc fingers. We were involved in the zinc fingers uh, with Aaron Klug. Uh, started a little company called Gendac, which was later became part of Sangamo. And then um, Talon Tal uh, proteins uh, were even easier to program than meganucleases or zinc fingers. We, we were involved in that including uh, one of my talented postdocs named Feng Zhang. He and I worked together on talons, and then he started up his own lab at MIT, and then we um, um, both started working on a new this new phenomenon called CRISPR. Um, it, had, like, it had been in the literature uh, for, uh, since the 1987, but it was only re starting to dawn on groups, um, mainly biochemists like uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, how you would go about harnessing this as a, um, as a technology. Um, there were a number of people before uh, Jennifer Emmanuel, uh, Fung, and my, and my own labs uh, that, that had established that it was important in um, resisting viruses and bacteria. Um, but turning it into a technology of gene editing, I think, was uh, non-obvious and, in fact, had a, a good chance of failure. For example, we had been trying to adapt another genome editing, genome engineering strategy, which we called MAGE, so other people called recombineering. Um, but that really still, still, after decades of work, only works in E. coli, or only works well in E. coli and we have not been able to transfer it to other organisms. CRISPR, on the other hand, serendipitously works in every organism without major modifications, just tweaking how the component molecules are, are uh, produced. Anyway, so uh, uh, Feng Zhang and uh, one of my graduate students, Le Kong, published a paper, Le was the first author, in a uh, in January 2013, side by side with the one that that that, that I did with the uh, first authors, Prashant Male, uh, who's now at uh, UCSD, and Luhan Yang, who's one of the key players in the xenotransplantation um, work of applying CRISPR to to uh, getting organs from pigs, um, and then. Um, Every, everybody read these papers and said, and it said it looked pretty easy. We, oh, we deposited the, the, the tools, the molecular tools to do this in a nonprofit called AdGene, and that just caused it to spread even faster, um, where people realized that for 50 bucks they could get in the game, and it was really, of all the technologies that helped develop, this was uh, probably the easiest one for people to adopt. Next-gen sequencing it had, a, had a big million-dollar machine even in the very early days, uh, to, to, to practice it. 
this, you just needed whatever you already had plus this little uh, plasmids you get from, from this nonprofit ad gene. And then it just, and it just spread and the rest is uh, sort of history. Yeah, so getting back to why, well, why people should worry about it, uh, I mean, there's, I think there's these very powerful applications, uh, which is like somatic gene therapy in adults, which people should be worried about. So gene therapy in adults, uh, there's now 2,000 gene therapies um, where you'll take uh, a little piece of uh, engineered DNA, put it inside of a viral coat, so all, all the viral genes are gone and you've put in, say, a human gene. Or you can have non-viral delivery, but the important thing is you're delivering it either inside of a human or you're taking cells out of the human and putting the DNA in and then putting them back in. But you can do very powerful things like curing um, inherited diseases and curing infectious diseases. For example, you can edit out the receptor for the HIV virus and cure patients, AIDS patients, um, and in a way that's not dependent on vaccines and you know, multi-drug resistance, which has plagued um, the HIV-AIDS story from the very beginning. So it's a, you're basically making a human being, which is now altered, augmented in a certain sense, so that unlike most humans, they are resistant to this um, major plague of mankind, which is HIV-AIDS. So there are now people walking around uh, who are genetically modified. Uh, th th there are some that are resistant to AIDS because they've had their T cells or their, um, more generally, their blood cells uh, modified. Um, there are people that, there are children that have been cured of blindness by gene therapy. Not, 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 none of this is CRISPR, but it's, it's in the same vein. CRISPR is overtaking it very quickly, and it's, in a sense, drafting behind all the uh, really beautiful work that's been done with uh, delivery of DNA, delivery of genetic components to patients. But there are 2,000 uh, gene therapies of various sorts in clinical trials in phase one, two, and three. Typically, phase one is about toxicity, phase two is about efficacy, and phase three is when you really uh, say, is it ready for market? Um, one has been approved. It's been approved in Europe by the EMA, not in America yet. It's for, uh, it's called Glibera. It's for a, a pancreatiasis, a lipid disorder. It is the most expensive drug in history. Um, it's over a million dollars per dose. In principle, it could be one dose per lifetime. Uh, so it's comparable to orphan drugs, which are rare uh, disease uh, treatments. But it's... Uh, and, and we, can, we can hope that we can bring down the cost either by going for larger markets. So some of, the, some of the diseases that are aimed at are not rare diseases, but they're more common ones, these infectious diseases. No, typically, so orf, the Orphan Drug Act uh, is a way of encouraging the industry to go after these very rare diseases by permitting them to uh, charge uh, <clears throat> the correct amount uh, to compensate for the drug development costs and profit, um, and get reimbursed for it. So, uh, so now there, there are handfuls of orphan drugs. And in fact, I think at this point, even though these are very, very rare, I mean, some of these, some of these diseases are 
one in a thousand, one in ten thousand, one in a hundred thousand, they're very rare. Um, they nevertheless are gaining uh, profitability, which is on the order of 30% of the entire pharmaceutical industry. So um, it, it's, it, it's, uh, uh, now I'm not, sh we're, nobody is sure whether this is sustainable. If we get to the point where we have custom drugs, basically every person has their own drug and each of those drugs costs a half a billion dollars to produce and we're broke. But if we get better at it, and in fact, if we have, if we have a class of drugs that works really well, um, where you can use smaller cohorts and prove it, I mean, by definition, rare drugs, you're using small cohorts. Sometimes they're so small, you never even make it to phase three. For example, some of these, these uh, hereditary blindnesses, you gather up everybody in the world um, that you can find that is willing to participate, and you cure them all. Um, for most of them, and uh, now you can't move on to phase, in the toxicity trial, you actually proved efficacy and you cured them. There's really nobody left in the world to cure. Um, and that's a uh, pretty high quality first world problem to, to, uh, to have that happen. So anyway, that's all in um, adults and children. Sometimes you have to do it in children because the, the brain is wired up at an early age. And so if you cure blindness late in life, you can make it so the patient can see, the photons can see that there's something going on that they didn't see before, but they can't process it. They can't say, oh, that's a face, or that's a person. It's just kind of these blurry, or even sharp but uninterpretable uh, images. So if you do it early enough, then, then they can actually um, develop close to fully functional vision. So you can imagine some developmental diseases uh, that affect, especially those that affect the brain, they, um, you might have to do it as a fetus. So there's, ar there's already fetal surgery that's done to, to catch things. But if you have to tinker with the molecules, um, then, it, then it, you might want to do it as a fetus, or you might want to do it even earlier. Um, and then you get into this whole business of whether you can do the germline or not. And, uh, and society doesn't know where to draw the line. Is the, draw, is the line drawn uh, germline, or is it drawn uh, at the level of medical significance? In other words, if it's very medically significant, it doesn't matter whether it's in an adult or a child or a fetus or an embryo sperm or an egg, uh, if, the imp if the positive impact is high enough, then there's no alternative. Um, but sometimes people like to draw lines um, with a buzzword rather than with a sharp medical. I mean, an example is uh, golden rice, um, where the, the line, I would think, should be drawn between uh, uh, you know, medical uh, versus non-medical foods. So most GM foods, I have to agree with the GM critics, don't really get the average person anything that they can recognize. You go to the supermarket and there's not that big a difference between the GM foods and the not GM foods in terms of price or quality or anything like that. So why, why not object to them? You know, I mean, um, anything that, will, that you can label, you can start an ad campaign that's effective. You can say, you know, potato chips without cholesterol. They never did have cholesterol, but now the labeling, 
the labeling uh, sells a few more bags of them. Uh, so, so that makes sense. But then golden rice was a tough call strategically for Greenpeace, let's say, and some of their um, associates. Um, they could have classified that as medical, like the way that you would classify GM insulin. It's very powerful, and, and a million lives are at stake every year due to vitamin A deficiency. And, and golden rice is basically ready for use in 2002. So it's been 13 years that it's uh, been ready. And, and every year that you delay it, that's another million people dead. That's a, that's mass murder on a, on a high uh, scale. And in fact, as I understand it, that there, there's an effort to, to bring them to trial at the Hague for crimes against humanity. Um, you know, maybe that's justified, maybe it isn't, but, but you know, the, the fact is we have uh, a pretty good way of addressing this vitamin A deficiency, and nothing else has worked during those intervening 13 years. It's hard to get them pills because that's very expensive. These are people that, where they can barely afford rice as their sole source of uh, calories. Uh, how are they going to afford medicine? You're, Greenpeace is very well funded. They have um, many, many times more funding than the, the groups that are developing the golden rice, and they can lobby the governments to say it's not safe, and then and they can demand higher and higher levels of safety testing, and then when when the safety testing starts to look really good, they can go in and and uh, um trash the, the, the plots of land that's growing the golden rice uh, through you know, vandalism, uh, as has happened in the Philippines recently, um, and, then, and then say, well, where's the safety data? You know, well, it was destroyed by the vandals. Um, so there are many ways that you can block uh, development uh, or, uh, or uh, uh, approval of, a, of something that's quite clearly safe. Um, so the same thing can happen with uh, with the human germline. Uh, you could just treat it the same as other medical technologies, you know, uh, artificial limbs, uh, new pharmaceuticals, and so forth. They have to be shown to be safe and effective. Or you could draw a line saying, if it has the word germline modification in it, then no matter how safe it is, we're going to take a less safe method or or no nothing um, rather than have this scare word uh, involved. And I think you know, I, I think that once it's proven to be safe and effective, um, it will be like in vitro fertilization. It will be very difficult to to, uh, to deprive people of uh, of a technology that's uh, going to help their children. Now, in, in all fairness, uh, it has to be, there has to be no alternative. Or, or typically in medicine, you're, it's not relative to nothing, it's relative to, to various other technologies. And in the case of, of uh, genome editing or um, gene therapy more broadly, <clears throat> the challenges, uh, the alternatives are things like um, genetic counseling. So uh, the, the, the parallel revolution of uh, next-generation sequencing uh, uh, provides an alternative for next-generation genome editing, in this case, because 
uh, as the price has plummeted from $3 billion to now less than 1000 um, complete with interpretation and, and genetic counseling, um, you can uh, <clears throat> stop many of these diseases way before you need a million-dollar gene therapy. So you can uh, prioritize who you're going to date. Um, you know, if you have a particular very uh, hazardous or deleterious carrier status, let's say you have Tay-Sachs carrier status, that's a very... Uh, it's a, it's a disease that when you have two copies, from one from each parent, the child is very uh, disabled and usually dies a painful death uh, shortly after birth. Um, it's something that most families uh, try that know that they're at risk try to avoid. But there are many, many people who don't know they're at risk um, uh, until, until they get the first child. And uh, so the solution is for everybody to know their genome and to not use it as a way of uh, you know, wasting money on, on hypochondria, but of uh, uh, seeing if uh, there's something very well characterized in medicine, um, something that's highly predictive and, and actionable by deciding who um, you're going to, to date um, and then marry. Or it can be done later um, with slightly more... Uh, medical and, and psychosocial inconvenience um, at the stage of, of uh, prenatal testing, including a, re a revolution that's coming in part because of next-generation sequencing called non-invasive prenatal testing, where you can test the, the fetus's uh, genes by getting a little bit of blood from the mother. Um, so the cost of gene therapy, uh, sorry, of genetic counseling is about $1,000 which can save you a million dollars later for either orphan drugs or gene therapy. Um, now, all these prices will, will drop, but the point is that at current, at current <clears throat> costs. And not only that, the, the, many of these are not, there's not a developed gene therapy that's been approved uh, or, or an orphan drug, and the anxiety of, of hunting down and figuring out what the genetic problem is uh, after you've already got symptoms in a, in a child like developmental delay is, is not worth it, even if the prices were identical. So anyway, so I, so I think that you need to temper the enthusiasm and concern for these new technologies um, with the alternative technologies, for example, genetic counseling. Oh, I, I forgot to mention the uh, re aging reversal. This is a big project both in my lab and in uh, one of our startup companies. This is not about uh, wellness or... Uh, you know, drugs that affect diseases of aging, uh, which are effects rather than causes, trying to get at the causes of aging um, and reverse them. And there's a fair, no fair number of precedents for this uh, in animals, but the idea is to, to uh, get it transferred into humans. Reversal of aging, I mean, some examples of this are if you um, um, take blood from a, a young mouse and uh, exchange it with an old mouse, the, the small molecules, macromolecules, and cells in the blood um, result in um, uh, a, a variety of biomarkers of aging being reversed. So you, you can affect the, vas the vasculature, the blood vessels, the, the nerves, the skeletal and cardiac muscles, um, and, and there and are measures of these that indicate that it's not just prolonging uh, 
a very aged state uh, or, make, or going for longevity, you're actually reversing it. And this is a much better target in any case than prolonging longevity because uh, A, it takes years to decades to even prove that you've, you've extended longevity. And also, if you've just, uh, if you've done it on somebody that's quite old, uh, then the economic consequences are dire. I mean, it, it, that's, that's the part of your life where you spend huge amounts on, on uh, medicine and, and don't improve the quality of, of life tremendously. So if you can reverse it to an age where you essentially don't use any medicine, um, this is much more, uh, this will be much more cost effective. You know, it's the whole point, the, the reason that an academic would help start so many companies is it is a way of accelerating the pace at which uh, technology is transferred from uh, an idea to an experiment that get, might get published in a paper that has no impact on society direct, other than scientists that read it, um, from a paper to a company, from a company to the market. So, for example, the, the next generation of sequencing technology, and I think quite a few of them now, um, uh, are starting to have impact in things like non-invasive prenatal testing. Uh, that this is, uh, some have said that this is the fastest growing medical diagnostic in history. Um, it's gone from basically non-existent um, three or four years ago to now millions of uh, uh, women that have been tested um, for, mainly for trisomies, so, so things that can cause uh, Fetal wastage or or uh, or, or um, severe medical problems uh, uh, later in life. I mean, you know, one of the issues with uh, the transition from academic work to uh, corporate work that's needed to get it into have an impact on society uh, are, are are questions about scale and uh, and secrecy. Now, one of the some of the some of the practices in in academia and small startups and even large companies are aligned. So some of them are motivated to publish in the same journals, sometimes side by side, because a good, high quality, peer reviewed article is an, is a magnet for attracting some of the best scientists to come join you. Uh, if you do everything in total secrecy. The very best scientists—I mean, you can always hire somebody—but the very best scientists don't don't know you don't know you exist. They don't uh, they don't really care deeply. Um, but so publishing can happen in similar ways in in companies and academia. Um, another aspect of secrecy is without patents, there would be a lot more secrecy than there is. But patent system is a way of of tantalizing and uh, encouraging companies uh, to put their ideas and their inventions in the public domain. They give them a limited monopoly for 20-some years, um, but only if they, ha they describe in enough detail that it is considered enabling. Enabling uh, technologies, uh, when they're patented, Everybody can then build on top of them. Um, some, pe some people claim that uh, <clears throat> there still will be trade secrets, uh, but not nearly as much. Because if you keep it secret and somebody else patents it, 
then they win because your secrets are no longer valuable to you because they can sue you for infringing their patent. Even if you did it first, now worldwide, it's first to file, not, not first to invent. So the fact that you've been keeping a secret all this time does you no good anymore in, in the United States, and that's a fairly recent development. Um, so you really have to file it, and that was kind of the whole point. Um, some people say that patents you know, are evil somehow, and, uh, but the alternative is worse, which is trade secrets, uh, which is what would be rampant otherwise. And also, the patents don't stop people from inventing. To some extent, they help us to invent because we can look at the patent. Oh, that's how they did it. And you can build on top of it, stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, the only thing it prevents you from doing is doing the same thing that somebody else did and then making money without giving them a cut. That's, that's, what, that's, what, uh, that's what's banned. And so some people say, well, why would I want to invent on top of somebody else's technology? because I'm just going to have to give it all to them. Well, sometimes uh, you don't have to give it all to them. You can, you can cross-license, you can make a deal where they give you something, you give them something, or where you're both uh, enabled. It, it's a case-by-case, case and it depends on how much value you add. If you add enough value, um, you could get uh, more than the original patent, which might have been very preliminary and limited. So. Uh, so Revive and Restore is a, a, you know, a spin-off of the Long Now Foundation. Uh, Ryan Phelan and uh, Stuart Brand have been uh, championing the merging of some of the most cutting-edge molecular methods like uh, uh, CRISPR and next-generation sequencing with you know, uh, very significant needs in the um, uh, ecological, environmental conservation movements. Uh, we have, um, you know, islands that have many of the world's most diverse and beautiful species, birds, reptiles, amphibia, and so forth, and they're endangered by invasive species, um, new diseases, slight changes, and in, in just even a few degrees change in temperature can uh, shift the ecosystems faster then the species can adapt. We could just say, well, let nature take its course, even though humans are influencing it. Or we can uh, uh, use these powerful molecular methods to track, diagnose it, and then to take action with gene drives uh, or with uh, you know, preparing uh, vaccines, um, gene drives being a kind of vaccination that spreads itself. Um, uh, or in the... Uh, making synthetic viruses so we can accelerate the process of using CRISPR vaccines to fight them as we're doing for the, the uh, uh, herpes virus in, in elephants. So, so, so Revive and Restore is l largely about conserving uh, important ecosystems, not just important in some abstract sense, but sometimes in a very practical um, human, direct, human self-centered way. So for example, in the tundra, of uh, Canada, Siberia, Russia, and Alaska, the the uh, the permafrost is supposedly permanent is is melting, and with it is being could be released as much as two times the carbon of all the rest all the forests all over the world, um, as if they all burnt and released their carbon dioxide and methane into the air, causing global warming. And uh, some of the 
um, environmental studies, for example, from the Zimov group, have shown that if you uh, can restore some of the keystone species that were there not too just uh, not too long ago that have very recently left or gone extinct, you can lower the temperature by uh, 15 to 20 degrees, which could greatly delay or maybe even reverse the process of permafrost um, thawing. So, so some of the questions that come up with revive and restore of uh, using cutting-edge molecular technologies for uh, ecosystem conservation and preservation. Some of the same questions come up as come up <clears throat> with uh, using these, these molecular technologies in medicine, which is who gets to choose, who decides, uh, are people not uh, being heard or not being invited to sit to talk? I, you know, I think in in all these cases, both medical and environmental, there is um, maybe more than ever before an effort to engage all sorts of citizens. Um, you know, regular folks that know no science, at least before they start the conversation. Um, um, patient advocates, environmental advocates, um, scientists, ethicists, lawyers, uh, politicians, and so forth. They're, they're, uh, you know, many of these meetings have, are, are uh, uh, presented in a video conference uh, on the web, uh, webcast uh, real-time, and Twitter questions are uh, in, encouraged. Uh, it doesn't mean it's perfect, but at least uh, it's very different from, say, the Manhattan Project, where the public was not invited to weigh in on whether we should, for example, take a chance that atmospheric testing would ignite the atmosphere. That was one of the things the physicists tried to calculate on their own without anybody meddling. Um, if it had ignited the atmosphere, that would not have been highly protective uh, to our uh, uh, nation or the world. I think here the, the idea is to get as many people thinking about uh, the unintended consequences as possible and to proceed uh, cautiously. Now, the, the question of who decides ultimately uh, with these kind of tra transparent and, and open projects where it's not being done in secret like the Manhattan Project is society decides. It's, 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 is we vote with our wallets, we vote you know, with the free enterprise system, with our politics, um, the power of the pen, and uh, and it may not be it it's, it it and in some cases it's uh, we may change our mind later and and so there's an emphasis on things that are reversible if that's uh, those get higher priority but eventually we do irreversible things uh, certainly um, it'd be very hard at this point to to surgically remove uh, automobiles. From our lives, uh, even though they kill a million people per year, we couldn't just delete them. Uh, it would be very hard to go back to previous agricultural methods because the early pre-agricultural society could not possibly sustain seven billion. In fact, probably even just a couple of generations back in in, um, in uh, crops could not sustain seven billion people. So, who decides? Uh, whether a particular species come back, it could be, does it help human beings? It's a very 
species chauvinistic way of looking at it, but if the if the mammoths actually can lower the temperature of the of the permafrost by fifteen to twenty degrees, and we don't have a particularly better way of doing it, let's say with um, motorized versions of mammoths, um, then we might do it. Uh, but it, hopefully, it will involve uh, many countries uh, making this decision. Maybe at the United Nations level. Certainly, with gene drives, where you're um, <clears throat> unlike vaccines, where you where you have medical professionals going door to door, essentially village to village. Gene drives and mosquitoes do it themselves, and you could spread throughout sub-Saharan Africa. They don't respect borders or wars or any any other things that uh, would uh, hold back uh, medical professionals. Um, so you probably want to get the buy-in of, of all the nations, not just the ones that are most desperately in need of the gene drives to eliminate malaria. Well, it's a it's a extraordinarily exciting time for scientists, uh, in particular those involved in reading and writing genomes, but it should be an exciting time for everybody, and also a scary time for scientists and everybody, uh, where uh, an increasing number of decisions of politicians, CEOs, and regular citizens depend on some technical um, nuance and expertise. We can no longer say, oh, well, I'm just going to vote with my party. Um, it, it really is, let's, you know, don't complain about being excluded from a discussion if you're excluding yourself from that discussion. I think that's the power of, you know, of uh, the community of intellectuals that are trying to reach out to everybody in the world. And it's not, it's not intended to be an exclusive club. It's intended to be a conversation.